Conservative. Constitutional. It's the Andrew Cooper Writer Show, keeping you informed on what's going on right here in Kentucky. And welcome, everybody, to another amazing day here on the Andrew Cooper Writer Show. Of course, I'm your host, Andrew Cooper Writer. You know, sometimes I'm clairvoyant, sometimes I can tell the future. And yesterday, you watched a show, hopefully, if you're watching every day, which if you're not, shame on you. What are you doing out here? I'm out here making them every day. Why aren't you listening to them every day? But regardless, if you missed it, I spent some time talking about the DEI issue towards the end of the show that is going on in our K-12 through education and how we've seen uh, Senator Mike Wilson filed a bill uh, dealing with DEI in colleges, but we hadn't yet seen anything dealing with the rampant DEI issue that we are spending way more money on as a taxpayer that's going on in our K through 12 education. Well, almost like a clairvoyant, uh, as I got done recording that show, it comes out that Senator Meredith has put forward a bill to deal with DEI in our public schools, having a lot of the same language as the DEI out of college schools. And, and a lot of both their languages, by the way, is, is stealing language from a bill from Matt Lockett's uh, bill in 20, I think it was what the 2022 session where he was attempting to address critical race theory being taught in the schools. Because, of course, DEI was just CRT rebranded. And if you don't put a stop to this, they're just going to rebrand DEI as something else as they continue to push this idea of racial division and that, of course, you know, race is all that they should be paying attention to or gender or everything else instead of looking at a person as an individual, which which is the ultimate evil of all these things is it looks at people as collectives, classes, races, genders. It doesn't look at each individual person, student, if it's in a school, as an individual with their own individual issues and challenges. You know, a lot of times these DEI trainings, of course, will push forward these ideas like, well, you need to learn the culture uh, and, and struggles of people if you want to uh, somehow teach them. This is, this is a big thing, you know, a cultural understanding, they said, which is <coughs> always very interesting to me, because every time I hear that, I just imagine some white as snow teacher sitting in a classroom with a DEI instructor teaching them, I guess, cultures of minorities, which doesn't make any sense. We're all in American culture. And what does it matter if that teacher doesn't know the latest, I don't know, uh, hip hop artist or the latest trends for them to teach you math? Right. We're all one culture. And that's the other thing, too. Looking at groups based upon racial skin color, other things as simply cultures to be understood in order to be able to teach them things like math and reading. Absolutely. Obviously ridiculous. But we've seen this big push. I was calling it out in K through 12. Senator Meredith put forward a bill. And, uh, you know, this is where you got to know your history. And it's incredibly important because right now, with what we see going on with these DEI bills and this push against it, I don't think there's a better example of political hypocrisy, I guess. Or would it be rather uh, pol politicians using issues, especially hot button issues, issues that we are all really concerned about 
in order to run cover for their own failures, such as, you know, we see this with abortion all the time, gun issues all the time, uh, other social issues, you know, the LGBTQ issues, DEI issues now, where they say they're taking action on these things. Most of the time they end up being half measures while really, while they take quote unquote action, they continue to fund or push forward the very same mechanisms that have led us to have these issues in the first place. And there's no, there's no almost perfect example of this than the DEI issue in the state Senate right now. And here's why let me break this down. So in 2021, the legislative branch uh, passed Senate Bill 10, where, by the way, Mike Wilson, who is the sponsor of the No DEI in Colleges bills, and of course, he was a co-sponsor of that bill, along with uh, Meredith, who vote, who, who's putting forward the DEI bill in K-12 education, he voted for it. So they're both now sponsors of anti-DEI education while they're voting to pass Senate Bill 10. And what did Senate Bill 10 do? Well, uh, in 2021, that bill, it, it created the Legislative Commission on Race and Access to Equal Opportunity. This was literally a DEI committee, a committee dedicated to pushing forward these DEI concepts. And, and, and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating here. Let me, let me play for you. So this was literally just a few months ago. This is from a show I did a few months ago on this committee um, where they're receiving this presentation from the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, at least you think this wasn't a DEI committee. Here you go. We hosted our first DEI Academy, which was a three-day educational and interactive experiences for business executives, HR leaders, and DEI professionals to raise awareness and provide actionable steps to embed DEI in their respective organizations and business. So that was a uh, the, the Kentucky Chamber of Commerce making a presentation from their DEI sector to this committee. This was literally a few months ago. This was, I think this was like four months ago, five months ago. It was not long ago. And they're making a presentation on DEI to the this, this committee that was voted on and formed by the Republican, so-called Republican legislature in 2021. And how did they respond? How did the the uh, you know the co-chair here? We're going to hear Timoney, Representative Timoney, respond. They respond by saying DEI is awful. Did did anybody call them out for how these these topics are divisive? They're useless. They're a waste of money. I mean, when she showed for those of you listening audio only, she showed a slide of organizations that attended their DEI summit, and several of them are either government organizations or funded by the government. And so what did, what, what was the response? Here's co-chair Timoney's response. And uh, I think that you all did a really, really good job there. And if we're going to wage a war on a 0% income tax rate, this is, this has a seat at the table clearly without question. And uh, I really appreciate that today. You really kind of gave me some talking points to be able to discuss that going forward. Um, you know, oh, DE&I, that's uh, it's socialism. And, and I get frustrated um, because it's like, no, there's, there's value here. And I, and I wanted to have more articulate points for them to help understand from my perspective. And you all provided those today. So I appreciate both groups today on that. Thank you, chairman. So that was literally a few months ago in a committee formed by this legislature just a few years ago 
receiving a DEI presentation. And instead of saying, look, that is crazy stuff, the same stuff that we need to be drafting bills and banning, instead of saying that, what Timney say? He said, Oz. This clearly has a seat at the table. If we want to get to a 0% income tax, this clearly has a seat at the table. How does, how does that make sense at all? I mean, tell me, tell me, how, does that make sense to you? You, you know what? Tell me, if, if you can explain that to me, if you can explain how DEI somehow affects the 0% income tax, uh, please, please, you email me info at the show.com because sometimes I do sit there and wonder what the heck was he saying? I, 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 I just have no idea. But so the same people that forwarded that voted for that committee, the same ones <laughs> are now putting forward bills banning the very thing that they've been spending our money on for years to push forward. And this wasn't done by the governor. This was done by the legislature. Is it just Bashir being a crazy lefty? This is the Republican legislature's actions. And they did something else too. So it wasn't just in 2021 they passed this, and then ever since then, that's that's all they've done when it comes to DEI to show what hypocrites they are, or that they're clearly not truly principled people. No, they're being driven by something else. It probably has something to do with the fact that it's primary season for half the people in the Senate. We'll be going over that. What else, what else have they done recently to point to just, just their double speak, the way they operate? And it's gross. It's disgusting. We'll be covering that after this short break. You're listening to the Andrew Kubrater Show, your source for Kentucky politics. Want to reach out to the show? Feel free to email info at theandrewshow.com. We'll see you back here in a few short minutes. And you are back with the Andrew Kubrater Show. For the break, I was going over how the same people who propose these DEI bills, banning them in colleges and public schools were also the same people that sponsored and voted for bills that formed a committee to literally forward DEI and encourage it in our government all throughout. And you know what, if they want to come out and say, you know what, we made a mistake, we shouldn't have voted for that committee. Uh, and we need to make a move to disband it. We did the wrong thing. We were moving in the wrong direction and this wasn't the right thing to do, well, then I would actually have some respect for them. But the chances they'll come out and the chances they'll file a bill to get rid of the committee are next to zero. But they didn't just take action in 2021 forming a DEI committee. No, 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 no. See, then in 2023, these same people that are coming out now about how destructive DEI is endorsed the same DEI consultant who, by the way, held a DEI uh, uh, summit for colleges a few weeks prior. No, I'm not kidding. So these people, Mike Wilson, sponsor of the, the college DEI bill, and Senator Merritt, a sponsor of the K-12 DEI bill, just less than a year ago, less than a year ago, they came out and endorsed O.J. Alika, my opponent, one of my opponents in the state treasurer's race, for state treasurer. Now, he lost. He lost greatly because he was a giant liberal we did a great job exposing for what a crackpot he is. But anyways, and he was the major pusher of that Senate Bill 10. He actually ended up being a citizen member of the board. And it was one of his key pieces of legislation he was pushing for it and lobbying on. And so these two senators in 2023, just a few months ago, endorsed him for state treasurer 
And but right before they endorsed him, just a few weeks earlier, he literally held a DEI summit for college universities. This was that, that's not even a year ago. They literally endorsed a guy pushing forward the same ideas that they think are so dangerous they need to ban them for public office with an R next to their name. Why? Well, why why does this happen? They simply don't have political will. It's not about it's not about they're stupid. They should be paying attention. I mean, any of us who are paying attention, I sure hope the legislators should be, though they have done some things recently to kind of throw some, some cast some doubt that they do pay a whole lot of attention. But any legislator paying somewhat attention should have seen how dangerous this was. I saw how dangerous it was. You probably have seen how dangerous it is. You probably were recognizing that this type of critical race theory, DEI nonsense was a problem, especially considering back in 2022, there's bills pushing it forward. Right. But yet, not only did these legislators offer that bill, not only did they enforce DEI consultant, same guy who wanted uh, implicit bias training for all K through 12 educators. That's something else he lobbied for. They couldn't realize this stuff was all awful and racist. And now suddenly they find themselves with the political will and knowledge to fight against the very same thing they've been funding and pushing forward for the past several years. You know why? Because it's primary season. You know, this is why people running for office, I talk to people, I say, hey, go out there, run for office. And I'm, I'm not going to mince words about how difficult it will be if you want to win. And there's some, you know, uh, calculation about why you should run or why you shouldn't run. But if you can put forward a strong competition against a bad uh, incumbent, a strong push against them, Right. So you're, you're going to be willing to spend the money, go knock doors and have a chance. You, you think I may have a chance to win. I may not, but just you challenging them on the ballot causes things to happen. I mean, me challenging Senator Douglas back in 2022 made them in the COVID emergency. <laughs> I mean, they had to give it to Douglas to give him the win because I was calling him out for breaking one of his campaign promises he had made to not further vote for continuing the state of emergency for COVID. He voted for it anyways. I called him out for it. Within a week, they were ending the state of emergency and it was Donald Douglas pulling it forward. So even if you lose, you challenging them does accomplish things if you put forward a good, strong challenge. In this case, Senator Meredith, is being challenged by a, a guy with the last name Ballinger. I don't know much about him, but I'm told he's a pretty good guy. He's being challenged by him, and he's worried about it. And he's worried about it partially because, of course, Senator Meredith does not, he does not get along well with his constituents. He may think he does, but literally everybody knows he's a pompous jerk that talks down to them, so they don't like him. And where he has endorsed recently that DEI consultant, where he voted for the DEI committee, right? The, the commission on race and access to equal opportunity where he voted for that and is endorsing DEI consultants. He is weak and open for attack on this issue. And so in order to shore that up, we got to have these votes. We got to have a, a DEI vote in colleges. We got to have a DEI vote on K through 12 education. I need to sponsor that. So that way, when come primary time and I'm being hit, or being such a liberal, I can pretend to say I did something. Now, it kind of sucks, obviously, because they can wreck havoc and cause problems. And then they do one thing good to somehow, not even good, but they just, even even if it's only, you know, just, just a, 
not real. It's just, it's just something that they're doing to fake it. They now have bought back the ability to kind of push back against issues with the voters. Well, if the voters were informed and aware, they would be like, well, buddy, <laughs> the only reason why we're in this mess is because of you, because you kept voting for this stuff. You kept endorsing these people. So it sucks that it wreaks havoc, but at least now they're they're coming forward with a solution to the problem that they caused. But the, the issue here and the reason why even with them coming forward with a solution for they caused shouldn't keep them in office outside the fact that it shows that they have no political will. In the first place, all the money that's been spent on this is gone already. Let's see them also take the step to get rid of this, sta this statutory committee. Let's do that. But anyways, but they've also been funding a base of support for these types of things and they can rebrand and rejigger just like they did from CRT over to DEI and they can march onward still continuing to spend our money. They can march onward still. I mentioned earlier, of course, I'd throw a little, a little mess in the idea that um, our legislators are uh, somehow uh, intelligent or paying attention and they've they've done something to kind of point it in a different direction because you know speaking of messes we had uh, last year the towards the end of the session a bill passed that was dealing with the kentucky fish and wildlife and in the bill was a writer um that allowed <laughs> uh kentucky fish and wildlife to require you to get a license a, a hunting and fishing license if you wished to hunt or fish on your own land, um, if it was less than five acres. So what they were claiming, okay, this is, this is the issue that they were claiming. What they were claiming was, is that uh, people with, with small amount of acreage was not getting a license, going out and hunting on other people's land, and then was claiming, no, 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 I got this deer or I got this fish or something on my land. And so therefore I don't need a license to do that. And so they, they put in place uh, a rider on the provision here um, on the bill in order to say, Hey, look, um, you know, we need, we need to shore that up and make people buy a license, which of course is ridiculous. You shouldn't ever have to, regardless of the amount of acres you have, if you've got a one acre plot and you can safely and, and reasonably uh, sit out back there, uh, you know, you, you put forward a, a, a corn feeder or something and you've been able to get deer to come onto your property. You, sh you should absolutely be able to harvest those deer without getting a license. Here's the, here's the bill in question here uh, that passed. And this is what it says. Okay. The resident owner of farmlands of five or more acres or his or her spouse or dependent children shall without procuring any sport hunting or sport fishing license have the right to take fish or hunt during the open season, except trapping. So, so you see there, they add the resident owner of farmlands and then they added of five or more acres. And then they added it again of five or more acres. So they added on that rider of five or more acres. And so they presented that to the legislature and the legislature was caught with their pants down as uh, apparently um, hardly any of them read the bill. Hardly any of them did. Uh, they now, some of them said that they were lied to about what the meaning of the bill was, which they should keep that in mind in the future, but they just didn't read their bill. And because the, the legislators were caught with their pants down, didn't read the bill, 
a bunch of people had to go out and buy a hunting license to hunt and fish on their own land this year. And so they know they needed to clean that up. That was a boo-boo mistake. We should have maybe read what we were passing, but leave it to legislators to not bother to even peruse the laws they make. That's why, you know, when I was talking about the legislature being full-time uh, and, and having more time to pass more laws, why that would be a bad thing. This is a perfect example. With the short amount of time they have, they don't even read the laws that they're passing. So the first bill to get an actual hearing in a committee, the first bill uh, that should be voted on, I believe it should have been voted on yesterday, um, was Senate Bill 5, which simply repeals that five-acre uh, uh, rider and allows uh, hunting and fishing on your own land uh, regardless of acreage size. And it just goes to show this is, this is why you can't, you can't, even, even if they say the right things, you can't trust them still, most of them, because they're not paying attention. Be careful about who you're voting for and who you're supporting. You know, when, when you're considering candidates, maybe ask yourself, ask them a simple question. How does a bill become a law? And ask that to a legislator too. And if a legislator can't describe it in two minutes, um, get a new legislator. They don't feel like informing you about the process. And if a candidate can't explain it to you, you shouldn't vote for them for that office. I think that should be pretty clear and straightforward. At least I would think so. But you know, that's one of the things I look for. Well, coming up after this, Bashir has formed a new pack. We'll talk about that. And then, uh, Senate and house leadership was on KET tonight. We have that coming up still in this episode, you're listening to the Andrew Cooperwriter Show, your source for Kentucky politics. We'll see you back here in just a few, few short minutes. Well, y'all, it's becoming ever more clear that Andy Bashir is gearing up to try to make a run at the presidency potential. Maybe, maybe he thinks vice presidency first, then steps up to presidency. But it's it's pretty clear Amy Bashir is trying to certainly test the waters for it. And we have evidence from this. We have a big story this week. A lot of people talking about it all across the country. That is Andy Bashir has put together uh, what's called like a leadership pack. He's put together his own pack to help uh, quote unquote candidates all across the country in difficult races that want to do the right thing, not just because it's politically right and cut through the division with our political system that's in place. And so he's putting this pack together in order to, quote unquote, help people in those races. Now, first off, it's funny that he ran on there's no red or blue and division. And I want to take an over under like a bet. Like, what are the odds somebody would give me? Not that I gamble. You know, I'm not, I'm not encouraging you to either. But what would be the over under odds that a single dime out of this pack ends up in a Republican's campaign? I mean, Bashir claims it's not red or blue. It's just about doing the right thing. But of course, if he forms this pack and he only donates to Democrats, it doesn't leave much to guess that uh, clearly he's full of it. Clearly, he's been filling us full of a pack of lies this whole time he's been running for office. It was nothing but campaign chatter. It was nothing but pillow talk to get you to vote for him a blue when maybe you're more drawn to voting for Republicans. And this red or blue divide, he will continue. It will be there. I guarantee it. Um, I would I would be willing to take some pretty good odds that not a single dollar ends up in a single Republicans campaign. But besides that, why is he forming this pack? What's its purpose? Well, it's a few fold. First, 
what he's testing the waters for is seeing what his fundraising capabilities are for a presidential run. It's several, of course, million dollars to even get started to run for president. And he's he's looking for it. He's got about two years, three years or so uh, before he really starts to travel around a little bit more. We'll start to see him do that, of course. And so he wants to see what the viability of his candidacy would be. And the best way to do that is to form a PAC for no specified reason that, oh, by the way, those funds can be used, of course, to support him in the future should he run for something like president, something federal. But to see what his fundraising abilities are across the country, if he can get you to give money to him just because you like him and you want to see him succeed into the political future, and I'm sure his pitch to private donors might be, hey, look, think about running for the presidency, so throw a few bucks in here so I can make my case, that'd be great. Uh, that's a big part. That's a huge part of the reason why. This allows him to fundraise for the presidency without declaring for the presidency. But it also, if he does give it to candidates and maybe gives it to some, can buy loyalties. The deals can be made. Hey, you will support me as I run for president, and I will flow maybe a couple grand into that campaign for you. That's, uh, that's how that wheel gets greased, don't you know? Uh, money is the grease to the wheels of politics, it seems. And so it's just more evidence. Like I said, Andy Bashir's gearing up for a presidential run. It's going to be awful. He's probably going to be misusing tax dollars like crazy to travel around the country. You just kind of got to get used to it because um, this is how our political system works, apparently. So there you go. He's testing the waters. We'll see what happens. I hope nobody gives him any money and he decides he's not running for president and he retires off somewhere, but that's probably not going to happen. Now, um, KET, a few days ago on KET, uh, on Kentucky tonight, we had the leadership of both uh, on the Democrat and Republican side of both the House and the Senate do an interview with Renee Shaw there talking about legislative priorities for the year. Now, uh, there's, there's some discussion that goes on. This first clip I'm going to show you is President Stivers, Senator Stivers, who's the president of the Senate, talking about education and what they want to do with it. Uh, take a listen here. Talk about universal pre-K and daycare. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not a big supporter of universal pre-K, but we know we need to strengthen our daycare opportunities because that's a huge impediment for individuals to get back into the workforce. So I think everybody knows we need something in that realm. It's what I always talk about, what it's going to look like. Um, that's one that I think there's potential of talking about how we get to a daycare model. So, so let me frame that in a little bit here. So they were talking about the budget, things that they would be willing to spend money on. So what he's talking about here in that context is that he is willing to look at spending our dollars, our dollar, dollar bills, your, your tax dollars on improving our daycare system. And what he's talking about is obviously more government subsidization and more government give outs to these private companies of your tax dollars in order to make daycare work. But here's my point. Before we give a single dollar to a daycare, perhaps we can take a look at some of our regulations. Okay, because there's a few things going on right now uh, with daycare that are causing us to have some issues. So 
there's a, there's a few different kinds of daycare facilities. So license type one is, is probably what you think of when you think of a, a daycare facility. And that's a license type where, you know, it's a full-fledged uh, daycare facility. They have a director. They're taking care of tons of kids, so on and so forth. License type two is a bigger kind of, typ typically it's home-based. Certified is a person who's gone through some extra trainings and so on and so forth. And they're allowed to have uh, a few more kids in a home-based daycare system. And then registered, they're limited to, I believe, three kids or six kids of one sibling group, if, if that makes sense. So they're limited to basically three kids that aren't their own child. Um, to be in the registered daycare system. Okay. So um, there's, there's all these different daycare types and they all pay out differently uh, based upon the requirements, but there's something else that comes with the requirement, current state regulations, and that deals with a teacher uh, ratio, a ratio to, to the amount of teachers they can have. And I'm going to zero in on infants. So for infants in daycare, um, you have to have a one to five ratio. So you have to have one teacher for every five infants currently in childcare in that facility. So if you've, you've one employee for every five kids, okay, why is this really important? So they talk about, we need to have more daycare availability. Well, one way we could certainly see a little bit better daycare availability would be loosening up one, our registered uh, uh, daycare requirements and, and, and these home-based daycares, they should still get, I guess, inspections and, and those types of things, but, but they're only allowed to have three. But remember, if you go to like a full-fledged daycare, they're able to, and these are just my opinions. Okay. They're just informed by, if you have opinions, you disagree with what I'm saying on these daycare issues, please email me info at the and give me your opinions, your thoughts on it. But you know, they, I believe a registered should be allowed to have five because there is no requirement. There's like none. You have to have a, a high school diploma. You have to not test positive for D uh, for, for tuberculosis. You have to not be of course, a sexual offender, uh, criminal history, those types of things. And you're allowed to look after five infants in a licensed type one facility. But if you're in your registered facility, you can only look after three. So by upping it and allowing them to have two does a few things. First, it makes it into a more accessible system. Cause when you're looking out, especially in the rural areas, there may not be a whole lot of daycares and people are looking for these home-based service options. And so by loosening that up, allowing them to have two more infants each, for an example, uh, would certainly allowing them to have as many kids as you're allowed to have uh, if you had just one employee per the same ratio there, I think uh, could go a long way. Maybe, maybe you say, look, there's some danger to that. They should lower for the XYZ reasons I hear. But there's another thing that goes into it and that's the payouts. Um, and we'll be covering that after this short break. You'll listen to the Andrew Cooper show, your source for Kentucky politics, covering daycare payouts after this short break. And you're back with the Andrew Cooper show before the break. We we're going over Senator Stivers talking about spending our tax dollars in order to help with the child care problem. And my assertion is there are solutions we can put on our problem solving hats and fix our, and help address our child care situation without needing to spend more of taxpayer dollars. And one of the things I brought up before the break was that we could adjust our ratios, allowing slightly more kids per, per 
uh, teacher, but also in the home-based alternatives, uh, like we see in the rural areas where somebody's offering uh, daycare services out of their own home and as residence type style, allowing them to run with pretty similar ratios as that as a typical daycare facility instead of restricting them down. Um, so that was one suggestion I put forward because there's there's another problem here. And this is, this is why, especially in those rural areas, you're not going to see a lot of daycare. So when we look at the Cabinet for Health and Family Services, I'm just going to look at Fayette County and we look at their maximum allowed to payout. So the other issue is, is that large parts of daycares become so hugely subsidized and the government pretty much puts a cap on how much they're willing to pay per day. And so a lot of times that pretty much dictates what the cost will be, that they will charge that amount to everybody, uh, regardless if, if you have government subsidies or not. And that is the solution. And also we see daycares because the, the government, I'm going to go through these payouts, doesn't pay nearly enough that once again, same thing as Medicare, Medicaid, they will raise the prices for non-government subsidy uh, people in order to make up the difference, meaning now it's taxing you coming and going two ways. And so right now, take for example, I was talking about a registered facility, which is only allowed, I believe, to have three kids. Like I said, I'm interpret. I'm not a lawyer. I read the laws. I'm interpreting them. So I believe they're allowed to have three kids that aren't related to them in their uh, home, and they're allowed to watch as long as they're a registered provider. What do they get paid by the government? Maximum amount they get paid for a full day of infant care is $16. So you can take care of three kids, three infants. You're getting paid, what, three times 16. So that's 30 plus 18. So 48. You're getting paid $48 a day. Nice, Andrew, that's though they're taking care of maybe just their kids or whatever. Maybe they're certified. So if you move up to certified, which is still a home-based alternative, still not allowed to have the same amount. I believe they're allowed to have, um, I think, less, still, still less than five kids, right? A full day for them to provide care, they are allowed to charge $36 a day. This is in Fayette County, too. You go into the rural areas, it gets much less. But $36 a day at five infants, if you're allowed to have that, is only $180 a day total to take care of five kids. And you have to provide some things. A lot of times you have to, you'll, you'll be providing snacks, of course, and uh, those types of care. You've, you've got overhead, of course, that goes into it. It's not like you're just pocketing $180. You got taxes you got to pay. Uh, you got other situations like that. But let's go all the way up to license type one. So that's the type that you think of when you think of a daycare, typically license type one. They're paid $47 an infant a day. So at $47 an infant a day, and you're only allowed to have, you have to have one worker per five infants. Um, that is, what is that? $235 a day per employee. Now, Here's, here's just a little, little facts for you. So if you, if you want to have a good person, hire them, you're competing on the job place. Let's say you got to pay at least 15 an hour, but your, your cost isn't only 15 an hour. Um, as, as a childcare provider, no, uh, so you see, you have payroll taxes that are charged by your local governments, your state governments, so on and so forth. And you have to pay those too. And that adds an expense as well. So now you take that 15 and you want to up it. 
by about 30%. You got about 30% more markup. So really now the cost becomes $19.50 an hour. And at $19.50 an hour times eight hours, that's $156. You say, well, hey, that's okay. You're still making $100 in profit per employee. But remember, you've got rent. You've got management, right? You A license type one has to be run by a person who has at least, in a, generally speaking, at least an associate's. There's other ways they can qualify, but at least an associate's degree. Um, so you got rent. That's just their hourly pay. So you're not offering any benefits either. So that can be hard to hold on to people, especially people who work with kids a lot. You're going to have to offer benefits eventually, right? And so you you boil that down. It's just there's not a lot of meat on the bone. There's just not. And so they end up either having to charge other people more or they just can't really provide it because they can't find people to work for the amount they need to in order to be able to scratch out, make a living offering these daycare services. And so what can we do to change that without spending another dollar? Because I was just talking about payouts. And you're like, look, they can't make a profit on it. And I don't like saying it, right? But perhaps we can offer some exemptions on payroll taxes uh, to these daycare facilities, right? Perhaps we can offer um, some opportunities in order to lower their costs. I already said adjust the, the uh, ratios, but the regulatory costs that are on all of us and our cost to do business like our taxes, like our payroll taxes, like those other things uh, could certainly be something to look at, but that's not giving them dollar bills, but that's what Stivers was talking about. So there's just some options there, something to consider. And like I say, you can disagree with me. Uh, email me info at the If you think I got it way wrong, that's okay. Uh, just taking a stab at a problem and offering up solutions um, that nobody seems to want to talk about. So here's another thing. Uh, another funny moment here, Senator Neal, Democrat and minority leader in the Senate, shows us exactly why Democrats suck at handling funds. Uh, let's take a listen to what he had to say in this KT interview. Should be taken out of the rainy day fund to do whatever you think bold investment should be done. Well, you know, you're talking about analysts that, that deal with money that get down to those kinds of nuts and votes. But the fact of the matter is, is that we got a ton of money in the rainy day fund. So let me frame it, what he said. Let me add context. So he was going on about how we've got all this money in the rainy day fund and it needs to be grabbed and appropriated and then used to fund whatever boondoggle Democrat program he can think of. Um, and, she, and so Renee Shaw asked, okay, so how much of the rainy day fund do you think you should spend? And he goes, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not an expert. I just know we should spend more. And that is a typical Democrat. We've got a ton of money. Let's spend it. You know, they, they don't bring any numbers to the table, especially when it comes to education, right? It, they never bring a number of how much money do you need? How much is this going to cost? What is, what is going to be the long-term cost of this? What dollar amount, what, what dollar amount do you need in order to achieve this outcome? And if you're not achieving that outcome, then maybe we pull back funding and we look for a new solution. No, 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 no. It's always more money and there's never an amount. Imagine if you ran your household that way, where, where you say, oh man, I, you know what? We've saved up money. I need to buy a dryer for the house. I need to buy a dryer for the house. And, and my dryer broke. I need to buy a dryer. We've saved up money. So let's go out and get uh, a, a dryer. And you look at your savings, you look at all your bills and you make a decision of how much, what's your budget of what you can spend on that dryer before you ever make the decision, right? You look at the budget, you figure out what you can afford. You say, maybe we need a dryer. What are some of the other things, right? You consider that out and then you make your purchase. 
what the way apparently Senator Neal would run things is just, oh, the dryer broke. We need to go buy one. And his wife goes, oh, okay, how much should we budget for the dryer? I don't know. We need to talk to the experts first. I, I can't make that decision. Yes, I'm in charge of voting on this. I mean, I really should be the one bringing the solutions to the table of the conversation. But I'm just going to loudly proclaim we need things and then not tell anybody how much they are, which just, it just, it, it just is point in case why Democrats are so awful with money. I mean, I'm not going to pretend Republicans are significantly much better, but at least I would hope when a Republican comes to the table saying we need to spend more money on XYZ, they would then have a dollar amount for that money. But of course, um, not really the case, not really the case at all, but that's, that's kind of difficult. That's what you can expect. Uh, from what we have going on when it comes to the liberals. They're they're just not very intelligent all the time, you know, it, or it's always there. I mean, they look at government as a never-ending pot of money. I mean, to hear sometimes how they discuss some of these, these fiscal issues is just, they, even understanding. So Stivers brought up a good point when they were talking about education, uh, where, you know, Bashir pushes for that 11%, you know, raise for the teachers. He brings up, hey, look, I don't even think that's legal. Because we have to fund all school districts equally. But what Louisville pays a teacher or Oldham County, I guess is the highest paying is they brought up what Oldham County pays teachers and what, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, hazard pays for teachers. Well, completely different, completely different. And so hanging out across the board, 11%, you're going to get more money to uh, 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 Oldham County than you're going to give to some of the rural counties. And that's illegal. That's inequitable funding. You're not allowed to do that. Well, y'all, that's what we got time for today on the Andrew Cooper Editor Show. Thank you all so much, so much for joining me. There's more I wanted to say on this uh, uh, KT show. We'll be covering that tomorrow, of course, right off the top. Uh, until then, we'll see you tomorrow. Have a great rest of your day.